the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Pastor Gary Wagner to introduce us to today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Brothers and sisters, we need to stand and praise God because Jesus didn't come to earth to merely tell us the solutions to our problems, but to bring these solutions into our lives. Jesus doesn't talk about deliverance. He brings deliverance from sin into our lives. He doesn't just talk about total renewal in our lives. He brings that renewal. Heritage Reformed Church in San Jose. Hello and welcome to today's program. We're continuing our survey of Luke. Today we're back in chapter 4 looking at verses 15 through 30, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the ministry as we'll see today is that of preaching, not just a proclamation, but a proclamation that enters into the heart and soul of a man or a woman and changes them for all time and all eternity. It is a great message of hope that is straight ahead. Join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. He said a prophet has no more honor in his hometown. In other words, I'm not going to comply with your command. I'm not going to prove to you the genuineness of my claims by displays of power and sensational miracles here in Nazareth. I am the Son of God, and I am not accountable to you. If you ask me for these things because you desire salvation because you want to see the display of my power in your life to transform your life and your family, I would do it. But you're asking me out of curiosity and out of envy, and your motives are anything but pure. So I will not comply with your wishes. And so then he gives them two illustrations that turns his congregation into a bloodthirsty mob. He gave illustrations from the life of Elijah and from the life of Eliza. And the argument in these illustrations are overwhelming, my friends. He pointed out that the people of Nazareth were making a contrast between the people of Capernaum and themselves. You performed miracles at Capernaum. Now why don't you perform miracles here at Nazareth for your home folk? So Jesus uses a comparison to answer the question. And he compares all the widows and all the lepers in Israel with one widow and one leper who were not Israelites. And notice the force of the argument. He says in verse 25, in verses 25 and 26, there was a great famine in the days of the prophet Elijah, and it lasted three and a half years. There were thousands of widows in Israel, and they were having a tremendously rough time, actually on the verge of salvation. Elijah was a prophet of God, and he had the power to perform miracles. But he chose not to perform any miracles on behalf of the widows in Israel, to keep them from starvation. But he did use his miraculous power to save a woman from Sarepta in the land of Sidon from starvation. 
who wasn't even an Israelite. And boy, did that pinch his ears. And then he said, in the time of Eliza, who was a follower of Elijah, there was all kinds of lepers dying from their disease in Israel. But Eliza did not use his miracle-performing power to cleanse any Israelite leper. But he did use his power to miraculously heal a Syrian leper by the name of Naaman. Now, what's the point of these two Old Testament accounts? This congregation said, do some miracles here in front of your home folk, like you've been doing everywhere else. Because your flesh and blood and neighbors have more claim on you than these strangers. Jesus refuses to climb, to comply to their wishes. And then tells them why through the stories of Elijah and Eliza. And that is this. The gifts of God's grace and the works of his power are not bestowed because of nationality or outward connection of any kind, including blood relationships. He is saying, Nazareth has no more claim on me than Capernaum has on me. There are no claims that coerce God. There is no claim that men can lay on God and say, God, you must do this for me because I am such and such. The Almighty God, the Sovereign God, bestows His gifts of grace freely, mercifully, sovereignly, without any human merit or worthiness upon whom He chooses. No one can stand before God and say, I'm the son or daughter of a Christian. I'm the son or daughter of a preacher and save me on that basis. God, I'm a minister of the gospel. Save me because of that. God, you are obligated to save me because of the things that I've done. Oh, I'm not perfect, but I'm worth it. I haven't done everything right, but I've done a lot of things right. Now, on the basis of that, I have to claim on you, and therefore you are to duty-bound to act on my behalf, God. I deserve it. You see, the whole point of these stories about Elijah and Eliza is that that is not the way God works. That is not the way the Son of God responds. If there was anyone, my friends, who had a claim on God, it was these Jewish widows and lepers, don't you think? I mean, they were of God's covenant people. They were possibly even related to the Lord Jesus Christ. If there was anyone that had a claim on God to be saved from starvation, don't you think it were the, would be the Jewish widows? If there was anyone who had a claim on God for healing, don't you think it was a Jewish leper? And Jesus is saying, These two prophets had all the opportunities in Israel to save and heal and rescue people. But they didn't do it. Why? Because in both incidents, Israel was apostate. Israel was in rebellion against God. And though they were God's covenant people, they had turned their backs on Him. And so God turned His back on them and through His prophets opened the doors of the gospel to pagans, to Assyrians and Sidonians and exerted His liberating, transforming power on their lives. A widow from Sidon and a general from Assyria.
He turned his back on thousands of starving widows and dying leopards in Israel because they were in rebellion against God. Well, beloved, that's all this audience could take. Notice how the attitude of the people evolved. Go back to verse 14 and 15. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news spread about him to all the surrounding districts, and he began teaching in their synagogues, and he was praised by all. At the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry, everyone loved to hear Jesus preach. It was interesting. It was authoritative, well-organized, practical, bold, and true. The people couldn't stand the senseless trivialities of the rabbis, but everyone loved Jesus' preaching. At the beginning of his ministry, everywhere he went, there was standing room only. The people flocked to hear him preach. And then we come to the 20th verse, and it says he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in a synagogue were fastened on him. These people were becoming curious. What's he going to say next? Their eyes are glued on him, listening intently to his every word. The entire atmosphere was charged with curiosity. There must have been a power and a dignity to his whole appearance and to his voice. His every gesture and word riveted the eyes and ears of the audience. But you know what took place in that synagogue in Nazareth? It was far more than anyone they're recognized. The living word was reading. The written word. The word of God himself was reading the word of God. Now look at verse 22. And all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Then they said, is not this Joseph's sons? Now there's a change. Everyone praised him and was curious, and they were speaking well of him, which means that they were bearing witness that what he heard, what they heard about was accurate. Rumor, that it, rumor has it you should hear this guy because his preaching is powerful. They were bearing witness to the fact that the rumor was indeed true about this man. This was a kind of an empty-handed compliment. They spoke well of him. Because what he said was true, and they believed. And not because they believed, but because he was a gifted orator. So they were telling everyone that they should take the opportunity to hear him. But what follows shows they didn't believe what he preached at all. I'll look at verses 28 and 29. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with shock and rose up. And thrust him out of the city and led him under the edge of the hill whereon their city was built and they, that they might cast him down headlong. From praise to curiosity to shock. And now for some reason this audience that once praised Jesus now is a mob in blind rage and bloodthirsty. Trying to kill Jesus brutally. This was a furious mob. Now listen, beloved. You should learn a good lesson here. Sermons can make you angry, particularly if you're in rebellion against God. 
If you are not willing to submit to every word of God, there is nothing that will make you more angry than a sermon that pinches. And bear that in mind the next time you get angry with me. You take a look at yourself because a biting sermon can make you angry like nothing else can if you are not willing to submit to the word of God. The people of Nazareth asked Jesus to form a miracle for him. And he did give them a miracle. He left from their midst while they were trying to kill him, and he never returned to Nazareth again. Can you imagine their astonishment when they turned and he had just slipped out of their presence? It's a great deal to learn from this passage. We've studied it now for three weeks, and we have only merely scratched the surface. I impress upon you to continue to study this passage, because I believe if you do, it'll help you a great deal in understanding life as the Jubilee Sabbath. For the Christian life is Jubilee Sabbath life. Every seventh year was a Sabbath. Every seven periods of seven years was a Sabbath. Every seventh day is the Sabbath. And what is the goal of the Sabbath? It is rest. It is restitution, restoration, the recreation of everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sunday when we Sabbath rest together, We are looking forward to that great day when the rest will be complete and restoration will be final. Every Sabbath day when we come together, we celebrate the rest we have now from our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sabbath looks forward to the total renewal of everything, of individuals, of nations, of all of God's created order. And that means... That every reoccurring weekly Sabbath itself renews us when we keep it right and we don't break it and we don't give in to the world. A Sabbath means rest. It means forgiveness. It means cancellation of debt. It means the end of weariness. It means fresh life, renewal of life. Every Sunday, can be that kind of day for you if you sanctify it unto the Lord and don't infringe upon it and break it because it looks forward to that day when all of life will be renewed. If you're going to rest on the Sabbath, what do you have to do on the other six days? You have to work. Rest presupposes work. If you are not working hard the other six days, you're not going to be able to rest on Sunday. The Sabbath points toward the day of renewal. And how does God renew life and renew the earth? He does it through the work of his people that he uses as instruments as we seek to be faithful to him in every area of life. Life for the Christian is jubilee life. It means liberty, healing, comfort, joy, beauty, forgiveness, vengeance to all of God's enemies. Every Sunday, beloved, come to church and celebrate these things. We have a jubilant life now in Christ. 
we are now members of his kingdom. God's judgment will fall on, on, of his, on all of his enemies and on and the one place in all of the world where we should see this liberty, this healing, this comfort, this unity, this joy, this sense of forgiving and forgiveness is to be found in the church. This is the one place the world should be able to look and see these things becoming reality in the life of God's people. Our lives are to be jubilant, Sabbath lives. Brothers and sisters, we need to stand and praise God because Jesus didn't come to earth to merely tell us the solutions to our problems, but to bring these solutions into our lives. Jesus doesn't talk about deliverance. He brings deliverance from sin into our lives. He doesn't just talk about total renewal in our lives. He brings that renewal. He transforms everything that we are as we repent of our sins, as we rest upon Him alone, as we surrender our lives to Him. And beloved, this is the point of the Reformed faith. This is that which separates the Reformed faith from all other expressions of Christianity. In one way or of another, all other synthetic views of Christianity and all other religions say God shouts down to us, here is the solution to life, apply it to your lives and your problem will be solved. Forgetting the desperate need of mankind who is dead in his sins and can do nothing to solve the problems. But in Christianity, as defended only by the Reformed faith, the Lord Jesus Christ does not shout down to dead, fallen man. Here are the solutions. The Lord Jesus Christ sovereignly and omnipotently brings those solutions into our lives and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He brings salvation. And that brings us finally to the end. My friends, if you remember nothing else from these past three weeks, please remember the nature of the salvation that Jesus Christ brings to us. Salvation is personal. Salvation is global. Salvation is comprehensive, temporal, and eternal. It affects and transforms every aspect of man's life inside and out, spiritually and physically, individually and socially, past, present, and future. It is not merely a subjective experience. It is not simply a political change, and it is definitely not a future pie in the sky. The gospel of Jesus Christ affects and transforms the hearts and the society of man definitively, progressively, perfectly, totally, and finally. It gradually leavens everything until the whole loaf of human experience has been transformed by the power of Christ himself. Salvation is a new order. It is a new age. It is a new creation in which everything that is old is passing away and everything is becoming new. Christ came to bring real, substantial, lasting change into your heart, 
and to your family, your personal relationships, and all of your daily endeavors in this life as well as the life to come in the very presence of our God. Jesus Christ came to bring the very presence and the power of God into the hearts of the lives of his people. Or to put it in the context of our study, he came to bring the principles of jubilee into our lives. He came to liberate his people from slavery. He came to restore earth to his people. He came to give his people rest from the ravages and oppressions of sin and Satan. He came to bring spiritual renewal and a transformation of inner life. He came to forgive us, to cancel out our debts with God and to heal us of our diseases. That's how big salvation is, beloved. Salvation is not an inner or future experience. This is the message Jesus came to preach. And it is the message that you and I are called to boldly preach to advance God's kingdom. And I want to make one final point. This passage of Scripture also goes a long way in helping us to understand the importance and the power of the preaching of the gospel. Jesus told his hearers at Nazareth that all the promises of the Bible, salvation, the principles of the year of Jubilee, the kingdom of God, would be fulfilled as he was preaching the gospel. As he was explaining these things, these very things were fulfilled. As he was explaining these things to them, the kingdom of God was coming upon them. And beloved, that's as true today as it was then. The jubilant kingdom of God in its comprehensive salvation comes into our hearts and our homes and our societies through the preaching of Jesus Christ. So how does Jesus preach today? As God sends ministers to faithfully preach the gospel of the Bible, the resurrected Christ himself preaches through their mouths into the hearts and the lives of his people. And what Jesus preaches happens. What he preaches, uh, that when he preaches that the new age is coming, it comes. When he preaches that the kingdom of God is coming, it comes. When he preaches repentance, people repent. When he preaches the restoration of God's order and peace upon the earth, peace comes into people's lives. It is the preaching of the resurrected Christ through the faithful preaching of men that the sovereign rule of God is established on earth in power and in grace, which results in the creation of a new civilization filled with righteousness and blessedness and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. John Calvin said, the pulpit is Christ's throne from which he rules the world. You see, that is the great practical effect of all of this on us here and now. Just why preaching, not preachers, not the personality of the preacher, not the eloquence of the preacher, but why preaching should always have a central role in your life and why you should be willing to sacrifice and give up anything to sit under the preaching of the Word of God, even if you have to drag yourself to it. In the faithful preaching of frail men, Jesus Christ preaches 
And as he preaches, all the promises and prophecies of the Word of God are fulfilled in our lives. Do you come to church excited to hear Christ preach to you? Forget the preacher. Christ, beloved, is everything. He alone is the only preacher that can do you any good. My preaching can't do you any good if Christ is not in it and preaching through me. There is only one preacher alone whose preaching can transform your life and the life on this planet. And that is the preaching of Jesus. And Jesus, beloved, comes and preaches every time his gospel is preached faithfully by frail men. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866. 866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.